Uh, I do want to start with something a little bit fun. Uh, you know, I'm getting a little bit older now, and I like to see blasts from the past. So I want to show you what has become uh, a bit of a famous Pepsi commercial from 1996. And it's kind of back in our uh, discussion today of things going on. And after we watch this, this commercial, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, we'll talk about why this commercial is creating such a buzz. Go for it. Andrew? Introducing the new Pepsi Stuff Catalog. Now, the more Pepsi you drink, the more great stuff you're going to get. Sure beats the bus. <laughs> okay, some of you know about this commercial, some of you have no clue, but what makes this commercial so famous? I mean... Uh, it's just fun to go back and travel back in time to the 90s, an innocent age or more fun time. Uh, why has this become so famous? Uh, some of you already know the answer, uh, because apparently there's a new documentary on Netflix called Pepsi Where's My Jet? So you know where this is going. Um, and uh, we don't have Netflix, so I haven't seen the documentary, but I am familiar with the story a little bit. And this is how it goes. Uh, as it turns out, way back in 1996, there's a certain business student named John Leonard, he saw that commercial, and when he saw it, he also saw the opportunity of a lifetime. Uh, he got the, the booklet on the Pepsi points, he read the fine print and how it worked, how this loyalty program worked, and he found a loophole. It turns out you don't need to buy Pepsi to get Pepsi points. Instead, you could just buy them straight up, 10 cents a piece. So he did the math in his head, and he realized that uh, he could purchase that Harrier jump jet, okay, for a cool... $700,000. Not a bad deal. Uh, per Wikipedia, the cost of that jet at the time was about $37.4 million. And so he got together a group of investors, wrote a check for $700,000 to Pepsi, and said, I'd like my Harrier jump jet, please. And Pepsi said, ah, good one. Well, you know, it's obviously a joke, right? He said, I'll see you in court. And what resulted was a lawsuit in 1999 called Leonard versus PepsiCo Incorporated. It was the, the classic beating the house kind of story where the little guy found and exploited a loophole in the rules of the big guy. Well, uh, how did it turn out? Don't say if you know. Did he get the jet? I'll tell you at the end of the sermon. I feel like Pastor Eric right now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, despite the questionable ethics here, many of us are intrigued by these types of stories where someone games the system. And you've probably heard of gaming the system. We all know what that kind of means. It means, well, you're not technically breaking any rules. You're just finding some kind of legal loophole or escape clause in the rules so that you can get ahead. And uh, that might not mean that you get a Harrier jet for pennies on the dollar, uh, but it might mean that you find some kind of tax law that everyone else has ignored to uh, avoid paying a certain type of tax. Or if you're a video gamer, it might mean that you find a flaw in the video game design to trounce your friends or beat the game. Uh, or it might even be buying a certain brand of socks that has lifetime warranty replacements and trading in those socks every third wash just because you can, right? And the reason I'm starting with this example here of the, the Pepsi jet here is it connects to our passage. 
we're gonna read about someone who's trying to game the system when it comes to God's justice, trying to avoid the consequences for their own sin. I mean, there's a lot of words in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. There's gotta be something in the fine print of the Bible that can make sure that our sin doesn't meet up with God's wrath. So let's open our Bibles and find out. We're in Romans chapter three. We'll be starting in verse one, Romans 3, 1. And uh, as you're turning over to Romans chapter three, I'll just kind of refresh your memory where we're at so far. Up to this point in the book of Romans, uh, the picture for mankind facing God's judgment is uh, in wrath is pretty grim. Paul's already made the case that Mankind, people, we've known about God, we've blown him off. And because we've blown off God, God has kind of let us go in this downward spiral of sin that gets worse and worse and ends in his judgment. And what's been surprising about this news in the past few chapters, particularly to a Jewish reader, is Paul isn't saying, well, it's just those dirty Gentiles who've snubbed God. As it turns out, it's the Jews as well who should have known better. Uh, Our passage last week ended, uh, this is the end of chapter two, with some very shocking and sobering words to any Jew in Paul's day. Uh, At the end of chapter two, Paul declared, person's not a Jew who's one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. In other words, he's saying, you know, it's not all this outward stuff and trappings in bling uh, that uh, made the Jews and Gentiles different from one another. That stuff didn't really matter. How they ate, how they dressed, circumcision, those things didn't matter to God. What mattered was on the inside. And that news would have been totally shocking to a Jew of Paul's day. I mean, a Jew of Paul's day might say, well, Paul, what am I hearing you right? It almost sounds like you're saying those Gentiles on the same playing field as us Jews who've done so much stuff. No way that can be. I mean, have you seen these Shmutzi Gentiles? And so Paul, at the beginning of chapter three, has to deal with this pushback against what he's been saying so far. So let's uh, just read the first eight verses of chapter three, all in one go. And then we'll come back and go through them a little bit more slowly so we can understand what Paul's getting at here. Uh, But before we even read that, I'll just say the first big point of what he's starting to say in these eight verses is that whether you are a Jew by birth or a Gentile, God is just in his condemnation of sin. Let's, let's read, starting in chapter three, verse one. It says there, <clears throat> what advantage then is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were the case, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Well, why not say, as some slanderously claim we do, let's do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. 
Okay, uh, let's pause there and talk about this. What's going on here? Who is this person that Paul is talking with? Well, first of all, it's, it's not a real person. It's this imaginary dialogue partner that Paul has with himself, basically. So Paul's engaging in this back-and-forth dialogue with himself as a way to communicate to the people in Rome. Uh, we've already seen this a little bit so far in the book of Romans, and he continues to do it as we move forward, so we'll see it again. But basically, he starts out on the objection side with some kind of devil's advocate uh, kind of voice against his own beliefs. So he poses an objection, and then he responds to it. Second objection, second response, so forth, back and forth. And he does this four times in his eight verses. And this imaginary opponent uh, who's talking with Paul, who's a Jew, who wants to know, well, hey, isn't there a loophole to escape God's judgment and wrath? Surely there's got to be for a Jew who has access to God's word, right? Well, let's go through each part of these back and forths. First one is in uh, verses one and two. I'll read it again. Uh, first question comes from the objector. He says, well, what advantage is there to being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? And uh, here we'd almost expect, uh, based on what we read at the end of chapter two, where Paul said, well, it's not about the outward trappings. It's not about the bling outside that matters. We'd expect Paul to say, well, there is no advantage to being a Jew or practicing circumcision. But Paul surprises us here. And he says, well, actually, uh, there's much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And uh, this is a surprise, right? Uh, Paul concedes to this imaginary dialogue partner that despite what Paul said at the end of chapter two, there are advantages to being Jewish. First of all, he says, the Jews have been entrusted with the words of God. Now, um, this is uh, excruciatingly frustrating for me where he says, first of all, because when you hear first of all, you'd expect second of all, third of all, fourth of all. If you read ahead in this chapter, there is no second, third, fourth. That's just Paul's writing. He will go on to mention other benefits of being Jewish later on in chapter nine uh, when he kind of expands this topic a little bit further. But right here, he just lists one advantage and that's, that the Jews have been entrusted with God's word. Still seems like a pretty big advantage though. Now this word um, entrusted means more than the Jews were just the recipients of God's words through Moses and the prophets. It's not like they were entrusted to just kind of sit on an egg or guard a library or a book vault or something. When they're entrusted, they were supposed to do something with God's word. Uh, it doesn't come across easily in the English, but that word entrusted is related to the word faithful, which shows up in the next few verses. So it's kind of like saying the Jews were given a charge to be found faithful with God's words. They were called to be faithful to obey those words in covenant with God. And they were faithful, they were called to be faithful to represent those words to other people. Uh, if you remember in Exodus 19, this is the time when the Jews are receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Uh, they didn't just get the commandments, uh, but God charged them with keeping his covenant so that they could be a kingdom of priests, his representatives to all mankind. So in this first back and forth between Paul and his dialogue partner, it seems like this objector has found maybe a loophole. Paul conceded. The Jews have an advantage 
of being charged with faithfulness to his word. So they're in covenant with God. Okay, so that's round one. Paul's imaginary dialogue partner moves on to the next round of the jest. He says, okay, well, you admitted it, Paul. So the Jews have been charged with being faithful to God's word. Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, this is some really clever thinking here. Uh, Paul's dialogue partner, he's appealing to the covenant that the Jews had with God. And he's basically saying, okay, I'll grant it. What if there were a few bad apples among the Jews there who didn't keep up their end of the deal? Does that mean that God Almighty is going to renege on his promises? Checkmate, right? God keeps his word. He's faithful to his promises. So doesn't the fine print really mean for Jews there's a way to gain the system to avoid God's wrath because of the covenant? No. Listen to Paul's response. The question from the objector was, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul's answer is, verse four, not at all, let God be true and every human being a liar, as is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, uh, this is the trickiest part of the whole passage, I think, as far as Paul's flow of thought goes here. So I'm just gonna tell you where we're gonna land and then I'll show you how I got there. The basic Paul, point that Paul's gonna make is, well, yeah, God is absolutely faithful to his promises, but that doesn't mean he's not gonna judge evil. In fact, our sin, our evil, our unrighteousness actually highlight how righteous and just and holy God is. Okay, well, how do I get there? Uh, let's go through it more slowly. Uh, first, if you note Paul's response, it's broken up into two parts. First, he says, well, of course, God's gonna be faithful. But then there's a twist in the second part when he quotes scripture. He quotes Psalm 51 to illustrate his point. And he says, so that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Well, here's what's going on here with Psalm 51. Psalm 51, you probably know, is pretty famous. This is the psalm that... Uh, King David writes after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah. He's repenting. He's grievous of his sin. He brings it to God. Uh, just a small snippet of um, Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there. David says to God, I know my transgressions and my sins always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So, the, the salient point here is that David's sin is highlighting God's justice. And uh, God's faithfulness and righteousness are manifested even through the sin of his own people, even through you and me. And when I say manifested, I don't mean that somehow we're making God more holy or more righteous than he already is. He's perfect in holiness. He has always been. He will always be. But what I'm saying here, or what Paul's saying is that in contrast to our sin and David's sin, it's easy to see God's righteousness and justice. So uh, for Paul's opponent, this is no loophole. God can still show his covenant faithfulness by judging sin. Um, I hope that makes some sense. If it doesn't, don't worry too much, even if you don't feel like you're getting the whole twist in his argument here. But the point is, is that appealing to God's covenant faithfulness is not a get out of jail free card for the Jews. God's 
will, God will judge all rebellion, all sin, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, because he is holy, he is just. Okay, so that's the second, and that was the trickiest one. It should be a little bit easier from here on out here. This is the second back and forth between Paul and his opponent. At first, it seemed like this objector has found a loophole. He's going to game the system through God's covenant faithfulness. But now, the tables have turned. And the third back and forth gets a little bit more frantic from the objector side. He's getting a little bit more desperate, grasping at straws. And so he hears what Paul says in Psalm 51, and he tries a new loophole, okay? David's sin was highlighted God's justice. He says, verse five, this is the objector speaking. He says, well, if our unfaithful unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say that God's unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. So this is a new attempt to find a different loophole. He says, okay, Paul, you got me. I'm a sinner, mia culpa. But you just pointed out how our sins highlight God's holiness and righteousness. And if that's the case, God would be unjust if he judged me because I'm making him look so good every time I sin, right? Okay, if that sounds a little ridiculous, it should because that's the point. Uh, but sometimes, sadly, I think people think this way. It was about a week and a half ago, I was in the Costco parking lot, as you do carrying your groceries back to your car. And I noticed some bumper stickers on the back of one particular car. And this one bumper sticker that caught my eye said, if we don't sin, Jesus died for nothing. Think about that for a second. If we don't sin, Jesus died for nothing. And uh, lest you think that this was a very somber, humble reflection on this person's own sinfulness and the greatness of Jesus, the sacrifice, it wasn't. You could tell by the many other bumper stickers there, uh, that the, the, which were rather crude and graphic, that sin was no big, to this per, big deal to this person at all. And they're making a mockery of all kinds of sin. So this bumper sticker, if we don't sin, Jesus died for nothing, was more of an arrogant, tongue-in-cheek way of saying, look, God, every time I sin, I'm doing you a favor. You need me, God, because I give value to your sacrifice. I'm doing you a service. Now, uh, this is ridiculous, and we all know it. That's why the alleged humor of the bumper sticker uh, hits home. It's such a foolish thought. It's laughable. But coming back to verse five, just think of this in the mouth of a Jew saying that God is unjust. I mean, how effective do you think it is for this dialogue partner, a religious Jew, to say God's unjust? Is that really the best loophole you can come up with? God can't judge my sin because my sin makes him look good and that'll, he'll be unjust? Does this person even believe it themselves? You think you're going to avoid God's judgment by accusing him of being unjust or a racist or a sexist or someone who's in favor of slavery or genocide? All these things are common arguments against Christianity these days. Our God is just. He defines morality. And so Paul doesn't even waste time dealing with his objection. He just kind of swats it down, verse six. He says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And Paul's appealing here to what every Jew would know from the Old Testament. God will judge the world. He'll do so in justice. And if God can't judge someone's sin on basis of a technicality um, or because of a loophole, that God couldn't judge anyone's sin and there'd be no judgment at all, no justice at all, and the whole thing would unravel. 
Now, um, the last back and forth, that was the third one. The last back and forth is pretty similar to the third one. Only this time, the focus is not on God being unjust and judging, but the focus is on the sinner as the one being judged. Verse 7 says, Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? So it's almost like Paul's opponent went too far. He said, okay, okay, I shouldn't have called God unjust, but I'm still making God look great by my sin, so maybe I should just get a free pass on all this judgment thing. I'm a special case. What do you think? Well, Paul's answer in verse 8 is, well, let's take that to its logical conclusion. Why not say, as some slanders claim that we say, let's do evil, that good may result, their condemnation is just. Again, Paul's response is brief. He takes this uh, objector's argument to its logical end, and he basically shows how foolish it is. He says, well, if all sin just makes God look good, well, then we should just go full throttle. Sin as often as you can in as big of a ways as you can as a good PR program for God. God will look great. I mean, come on now, ridiculous. This thing speaks for itself here. And so Paul just says their condemnation is just. No further comment needed. And the main point of all these first eight verses here is that God is just in his condemnation of sin. Yeah, he entrusted the Jews with keeping his word. Yes, he's in covenant with them, but that doesn't, the covenant doesn't mean he turns a blind eye to sin. He actually justly judges sin. And there's no caveat, no loophole, no technicality that's going to get a Jew, a Gentile, you, me, or anyone else from having our sin confront God's justice. And that's really the second point that Paul makes clear to us today in the back half of this passage here is that we are all accountable to God because of our sin. Let's read the, the rest of our passage here, starting in verse 9. 3, nine. Paul says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Okay, we got a, a, just a few verses here, but uh, I think we can cover them quickly because the main idea is so abundantly clear. We're all accountable to God because of our sin. Uh, just reading that first verse 9 again. Paul says, what should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. Okay, Paul, that's enough. We're all sinners. I get it. Three chapters of we're all sinners, right? Been coming here for a few weeks. You've heard this a few times before now. Hopefully it's starting to sink into our hearts. But sometimes we need to hear things 
loud and continually for it to sink in. Now, uh, before I move on to just where he quotes the scripture passages, I want to point out one thing that can be a little confusing with this verse. Uh, You might have noticed that at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, Paul asks, do the Jews have any advantage? And he says, yes, they've been entrusted with God's word. Here in verse 9, he asks a very similar question. What then? Do we have any advantage? And his answer is, no, not at all. So what's going on here? Is Paul contradicting himself? Is he confused? Do the Jews have an advantage? Yes, no. What's going on here? Make up your mind, Paul. Well, here's the basic idea here. Uh, Yes, the Jews have advantage in many ways, primarily in being trusted with God's word. But no, they don't have the advantage when it comes to salvation. They have no advantage over Gentiles. So verses 1 and 9, they're not contradictory. Uh, They complement one another. So yes, there's good things about being a Jew. He's going to go into a few more when he gets to chapter 9. But no, Jews can't gain the system just because they're Jewish and they have a covenant with God. They still have to face their sin before God. Jews, Gentiles, were all alike under sin. And then to make this point to this Jewish opponent, he has this mashup of scripture verses from the Old Testament. And he chooses a lot from Psalms. He has one from Ecclesiastes in there. But the first few that he all quotes back to back all have to do with the universality of sin, that we're all sinners. Uh, Just listen again as I read verse 10. I'm going to do a number thing with my hand here. Verse 10, as is written, so this is Old Testament scriptures, there's no one righteous, not even one, There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, We often say that repetition is one of the volume knobs in Scripture. So what's the point of this passage? No one, no one, no one, no one, all, 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 no one, okay? Sin is universal for Jews, Gentiles alike, and Old Testament scripture is clear on this. The second block of scripture here in this list focuses on the depth and the power of sin in each one of us. It affects our words, quite a lot on that one, our actions, our attitudes, and the choices we make in life. So I'll just read again the second half, starting in verse 13. First, several have to do with our words. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Then it switches to their feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. Bringing it home, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So this big mashup of Old Testament scriptures to a Jew. Sin is everywhere. We've all got it. And it goes deep. It affects our words what we think, our actions, our choices. And I think that we can often get inoculated to sin in this world because of how prevalent it is and how deep it is, even in our own hearts, because we swim in it and we produce it every day. I was talking with my my friend Clifton, some of you guys might know him, just saying, Clifton, I don't even know if we consider how deep in sin we are and how great God's grace is to us every day. We don't even realize the depth of it. But even if we get used to a certain level of sin, that doesn't mean that we're not liable for it. Now, Paul's imaginary dialogue partner, who's a Jew, 
He's seeking a loophole to get out of judgment, but Paul makes the case that even Jews are accountable for sin. And to prove it, he speaks in the native language of a religious Jew. He uses scripture, right? This long list of scripture. Scripture is clear. We all sin. Our sin goes deep. And just to make sure that this dialogue partner doesn't miss the gravity of this message of using scripture, Paul says this in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. In other words, Paul says, scripture says, I'm talking to you, Mr. Religious Jew. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Uh, the law, meaning here, all the rules, all the regulations of the Old Testament, they don't save us. But they do make clear that we need to be saved. Whether you were born a Jew or a Gentile, whether you grew up in the church or it's your first time here, hi, welcome. <laughs> Not the message you thought you'd get the first time to church, but there you go. Whether you think you found a loophole to escape God's justice or no, you haven't, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. I mean, think about that. When your life is over, you stand before God, they give an account. Clever words will fail you. You will have nothing to say. Righteous deeds will be insufficient when brought into the light. And clever plans and loopholes and technicalities and special pleading will all be for naught. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. We're not going to outsmart God at the throne of judgment. And that's really the bottom line of what Paul says to us today, is there is no gaming the system when it comes to God's justice. Now, uh, thanks for coming in today. Some of you are saying, man, that is a heavy message. I didn't want to hear that. It's my birthday today. It's not literally my birthday. But... Well, I would say, yeah, this is a heavy message for all of us. But in the bigger picture of Romans, that is the point. Paul has been dwelling on our fallen sinfulness and God's righteous wrath for a long time. Three weeks here, right? Has it been three? Has it been four? It's been a while that we've been in here. But Paul wants the weight of that sin to ring home for, that, for us to face the music and us to come with grips that, yes, every one of us is affected and the depth of it in our own hearts is deep. Why does he do that? So that we're ready to hear God's solution. And uh, I've got some good news for you. That's a pun, by the way. Gospel, good news, anyway. The solution's coming next week, and it's in the very next verse of chapter 3, 321. But today I want us to just kind of hold on this um, little awkward, tense place of feeling the weight of our sin, because that's really what the passage is about. And I want to offer a little bit of an odd application for all of us. Um, it's one application, but it's for three different groups of people, a little bit different. So this is the application I want from all of us from this passage this week. It's a big ask. But I just want you to consider your own sin this week. Because uh, if we don't clearly see our sin and hit rock bottom and come to an end of ourselves and our self-righteousness, then the rest of Romans 
The Christian message is irrelevant to us. But if we see our need, it is so sweet and beautiful and life-giving. But I think we sometimes get inoculated to what we have as Christians. Uh, What comes next in this chapter is the solution to our sin. So this is how I want you to consider your sin this week. Uh, For the first group, group, uh, some of you here don't really believe you're a sinner or that you sin against God or that you'll face God's judgment. And how do I know that? Because that was me. Um, I've shared before, I was not raised in a Christian home at all. Uh, And I didn't begin investigating Christianity until I was uh, my sophomore year of college. And... um, I was, when I was reading the Bible and meeting with a few Christians, doing my homework, I was meeting with a guy named Dave. And I said, Dave, listen, it's been great, but I figured out the mechanics of this whole Christianity thing. Okay, everyone's a sinner. We need God's solution, which is Jesus to die for us and rise from the dead. But here's the problem with your Christian thing. I don't think I'm a sinner. I think I'm a pretty good guy. Now, as I said that, as I've often shared from here and other places, I was a party and frat boy, right? That was my background. I had plenty of sin. Totally, whoop, didn't even know it. But uh, God must have given Dave some wisdom because he didn't point out the sins that were pretty common in the frat house. But he says, okay, I'll tell you what, Adam, why don't you read a book in the New Testament? It's the book of James. It's just a few chapters. And what I want you to do is read through this book and try to do everything it says next week. And we'll meet up again. I said, game on, man, no problem. Well, I'll tell you what, (sighs) I read through the book of James and I tried to do it. I was convicted of my sin. And very shortly after that, I gave my life to Christ. And it wasn't all the common frat boy sins that you'd think that convicted me. It was the part of James that talks about the taming of the tongue, where God said, that's you, Adam. You eviscerate people with your words. And that's what made me see my sin. It's kind of like with Augustine. You know, he was, he was a party. He was, Augustine was a party in frat boy too, if you haven't read uh, Confessions, right? And so, but what convicted him of his sin was he stole some pears, I think it was. He stole some fruit. And that was the sin that God got his attention with. Um, and um, uh, so if you think that you are not in line for God's judgment, that you're not a sinner, I give you the James challenge. Let's just call it that. Read the book of James. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up. It's just a few chapters long and just try to do what it says this week and we'll see how you do. Good luck, right? <laughs> um, that's the first group. Second group of people uh, thinking about our sin. You already know that you're a sinner and you know God's solution, which we're gonna talk about next week. So you're a Christian. Uh, this is gonna sound a little bit weird for us Christians, but I want us to dwell on our sin too, just for one morning of your devotional time. And the reason why is not just to muck and will wallow around in our own bile and despair. I mean, it's dark and gray enough out itself, right? But to do so as a launch pad for your heart to remember the depth of God's mercy and forgiveness extended to us in Jesus. Um, He who is forgiven much loves much. I'll share another quick story here. Uh, When I was a Christian for a few years now, I was living as a missionary in Japan and everyone knows, you guys didn't know missionaries are perfect, right? right? They're not. Um, And uh, I was a young guy. I had very little money, but the opportunity opened up for me to get a plane ticket back to the U.S. for Christmas. I wasn't expecting it. I thought, oh, this is actually going to come together here. And this is so long ago, this is when people actually use travel agencies. So I gave my money to this travel agency. They held on to it, and they could neither get me the ticket, nor would they return my money. 
and the seats were disappearing from the flights home. And I, was, I was locked in this holding pattern for about a week and I started to get really mad and I got mad at God. And um, I realized that I was mad at God that he had control over my life and I didn't. I was mad that I was not God instead of him. And I remember where I was. I was, I was with my bike outside of a Japanese convenience store when I realized I had no idea that I had that in my heart. And I thought, wow, God's really merciful not just to snuff me out right there. Um, but let me tell you, it awoken uh, just a, 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 an appreciation of God's mercy and grace to me. Um, I said in the first service, sometimes we have to remember where we came from because we get too inoculated to the gospel to realize how good it is sometimes. Uh, last group, uh, to think about our sin. You're convinced you're a sinner. This is group three. But you don't know God's solution or you haven't applied that solution to your life. Um, for you, it's not so much that I want you to dwell on your sin, but I want you to read ahead. Chapter three, starting in verse 21, because we don't have a way out of our mess, but God provides a way for us out of this mess. So I give you permission to read ahead, which we'll hit next week. Let's pray. Lord, you are far better to us than any of us realize. Even as I say it, we're far better. I'll probably be laughing about this in heaven sometime. Just be like, yep, that, that's so right. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness, which we just kind of treat like it's normal. We are recipients of your grace. Those who are Christians, those who have put our trust in your sacrifice, Jesus. So help us to be joyful. Help us to appreciate the riches of that. For those who don't yet know you, Lord, make it clear your answer. Or if they're there, make it clear their sins so they reach out for your answer. Um, we love you. Be glorified here. Amen.